1: This is a CBC Podcast. Um, well, this is going to be super, super fun. We're sitting down with Britt Ray, uh, Dr. Britt Ray. I, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start the conversation with the, uh, the question that I usually ask most doctors. Britt, are you a smart person doctor or a medical doctor?
0: I'm not the real hardcore kind of doctor. It feels so silly to put that title there. I just have a Ph.D., but no, don't, don't make me check out your body. It won't yeah. go well. Smart, <laughs> smart person,
1: doctor. It is. Um, Britt is, uh, is an author and a researcher working at the forefront of climate change and mental health, uh, which is ripe for a really interesting con- uh, conversation here mm-hmm. on Segway. Um, but Britt, g- give, us, a, give a, us and our listeners a little bit of a rundown on who you are and your background and uh, sort of how you ended up in the world of climate change and mental health.
0: Sure. Yeah. Thank you. It's super fun to be here with you three. So I am a researcher at Stanford University, where I look at what the psychological impacts of the climate crisis and the water ecological crisis. You know, we've got a biodiversity crisis. We've got water shortages, a whole slew of things um, all interconnected, of course, and what they mean for young people in particular. But I came to this work from a very sideways route. My PhD isn't in psychiatry or uh, a mental health field, actually. It's in science communication. Mm -hmm. And I've been working uh, as a science communicator for over a decade, a background in biology. But I really came to veer towards Mm -hmm. this path because of my own experience with significant distress about what's going on with the climate crisis that I had. A big encounter with in 2017 when my partner and I started talking seriously about wanting to try to get pregnant. Mm. And given all of the information I'm ingesting on a regular basis about the climate crisis as a science communicator. When I was adding the various components together, not only the grim scientific reports that are consistently coming out, but the lack of effective action from our leaders. It birthed the painful dilemma for me whether or not I felt comfortable actually bringing a child who doesn't have to be here into the world at this time, which Mm -hmm. at that moment was not something I saw reflected around me at all I actually felt pretty deviant and potentially warped in my thinking for even bringing it up, felt maybe this is just really privileged consideration that had gone too far. And I was wondering if there was anyone out there who connected with this. So I started doing some research, found out I was very much far from alone, but it was largely an underground movement of sentiment that people mm. um, were you know, on the similar kind of wavelength of questioning childbearing as a result of the climate crisis hadn't yet popped up above the surface as it has in a really surreal fashion since then, you know I've been researching writing this book for the last four years, and over that time, not only has the climate crisis and family planning become connected Really, there have been we have statistics, we have tons of reports and surveys on it. Now we have celebrities coming out and making this stance about refusing to reproduce because of inaction from climate leaders or at least being really hesitant to. We've got activist movements like Birth Strike or No Future, No Children launching within that time frame, pointing out the existential stakes of inaction by young people refusing to reproduce um, until leaders make it safe for them. (laughs) to do so by taking climate action i mean it's really exploded so um that that was all interesting and kind of validating for me but uh really that reproductive piece is just a tiny little sliver of how the climate crisis is now intimately popping up in people's lives how it's making them feel in a in a very different way than our conversations about climate which usually stick to Mm. the science or technologies Mm. or policies would lead one to believe and so I became really curious, you know, what does this mean for our well-being and mental health? What can we do to harness these feelings for productive environmental action and pro-social outcomes? And, you know, the rest is kind of history. I I actually did have a baby eight months ago, so I'm also a little brain fried right now on this conversation. <laughs> um, still not sleeping through the night. But, you know, the whole, that whole trajectory that. was,
2: yeah, yeah,
0: solidarity. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> But, um, you know, so it started with this really personal dilemma and then it really turned into an unfolding of what are the wider mental health impacts at play right now. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I am uh, I'm curious. I'm, cu- I'm curious whether and, and um, congratulations on your uh, on having your baby. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if in your research around the idea the, the the sentiment around around reproduction and the future of our species and the planet and, and obviously how they intertwine and climate action and everything was there was there anything that was pointing to the the um the the idea of not of not reproducing as a result of a lack of climate action as like a self self-fulfilling prophecy in 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 terms of you know like if you don't you know like if you don't make the people that are going to lead the world later then they then there won't be people to mm. make the decisions to to make the climate crisis and or ameliorate the climate crisis down the road. I totally
0: follow your line of thought. Yeah. It's it's super interesting when we take a step back and ask people who have these reproductive concerns, given the climate crisis, why they're coming into that decision, whether it's pro having a kid or against having a kid. So
2: I can um, see both sides of it for sure. Yeah.
0: You can see both sides of it. And it's even more nuanced than just having two sides. It's so for those who are refusing to reproduce right now, they will say things like, a, it's just not moral, or I don't feel like it's an ethically sound position. As I expect there to be major forms of civilizational and social breakdown, and not only the climate crisis getting worse, but knock-on effects of civil strife as people fight over dwindling resources. And I just don't feel comfortable doing that. Is something you'll hear a lot. Um, you'll hear people saying, "If if I have a kid, I need to pour." X amount of days and resources and money and years is bottomless pit of care and attention to the kid when I could otherwise be fighting the climate crisis I could use that energy for other things that are meaningful to me, Mm. or I've had some activists tell me like I can't go to prison if I'm breastfeeding right so if I want to do direct action and put my Mm. body on the line I can't do that. and then some people saying, I'm simply not strong enough to both be a parent and keep focused on this crisis, which demands everything and is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So I got to I got to choose my battles here. On the other side, um, I've heard a lot of people who are concerned about deciding to have kids despite it, say, along the lines of what you were just mentioning there. Basically, not having a kid feels like giving up because having the kid is a real attachment, like a flesh and blood and spirit attachment to the future. It means that I can never have a day where my eyes aren't open, both of them, and focused on this. And I will do everything within my power to mitigate harm and adapt compassionately along the way and protect the environment for my kid and other kids. Um, Others talking about the environmental politics of having these kids that are raised with certain environmental ethics in the household, expecting that they would then grow up into the kinds of future leaders that will decarbonize society and help us get on a better path. Um, And so they're kind of like these stakes in the ground Mm. that where the child becomes part of the climate action, whether it means that it makes the parent a better change maker themselves or that they're kind of offsetting some responsibility onto the kids to be able to be Mm -hmm. the strong ones to, to make the future more livable. So In those ways it's it's pretty diverse um and really what other people i forgot to mention that those who are saying hey i don't feel comfortable reproducing now believe that it's the most powerful visceral political comment they can make about how Mm. existential the stakes have become become to like prove it to their parents their family or as well as our leaders that this is no joke we're talking about a breakdown in the social contract of trust between mm-hmm. older generations and younger generations we're not going to play this game if you're not going to do your job of protecting everything that we require mm-hmm. to thrive yeah, Britt Brit,
3: I'm curious from from your perspective as someone who is considering not having a kid because of this and as someone who was a who who um, is a science communicator um, the thing that I find so interesting about climate change is that there's seems to be a lot of like unclear messaging, like in terms of like are we past the point of no return where like the environmental damage is like so bad that like it's almost irrecoverable or irreparable at this point, or like can we make a difference now by like making significant changes? It feels so unclear to me that I wonder like why um, somebody, especially somebody who's a science communicator, would. What what are the things that you know that would cause you to be so concerned about the future of the planet that would lead you to, you know, considering maybe not having a child?
0: There's never a point at which we're past some threshold and then it doesn't matter anymore because it's free fall, right? Like every single point at which we intervene means that we have a huge opportunity to prevent more harm, more death, more suffering. And also, you know, get creative about ushering in some alternatives if we're going to work together and really restructure these systems that we're living in but Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um you know it does get communicated um unfortunately often as this this kind of impending doom that makes people feel like it's just too late and so what's the point let's just check out now and enjoy what we have while we can party until i no longer (laughs) have to have to experience this or you know a lot of older people have told me like I'm not going to be around when it gets that bad. So mm. I feel really sorry for those kids. Like I'll throw them a lifesaver, but phew, thank God I'm checking out of here before the shit hits the fan. Like, you know, yeah. such really not great, um, mm. sentiments in terms of helping younger generations, but you hear it. And I think that further reinforces the point you're making. And so for me, it wasn't, it wasn't those feelings. It was more about Dealing with tipping points, right? So self-reinforcing cascades of change within the biosphere that once we passed, once we pass certain amounts of change, like uh, thawing of permafrost in the Arctic, which releases tons of carbon, both in the form of carbon dioxide and methane, which is much more potent as these frozen lands thaw and release um, the carbon contents of animals and plants that have died there over millennia and and been locked in the ground, which are now being released. And then microbes are on the surface and they chew away at the stuff and then they transform it into more heat trapping gases that release. And we've got way more heat trapping gases stuck in those no longer frozen permafrost lands that we already have emitted into the atmosphere, which is very scary about a run runaway feedback loop, right? Like, after a certain amount of that thawing occurs, and then it gets so warm that it continues to warm more of the earth, and then and then it continues to get released these positive feedback loops of you know self-reinforcing change you can't stop. That's not the only one. There's dieback of the Amazon, for example, with enough burning that continues to make enough of a warm atmosphere too that the fires are released. Really st- hard to stop and then it continues to release what used to be a carbon sink, but now is a carbon source, or you know, melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet, or, you know, die back with other forest fires of the boreal forest or like <laughs> so on and so forth. Right. It's pretty yeah. overwhelming when you start
3: it's so crazy. I, I was thinking of that. Like I at the at the beginning of this, I was like, I wonder what the connection is between like, you know, the mental health impact of like considering the 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 impact of climate change and And hearing you walk through those things, I'm like, I'm like fucking fucking so anxious. I'm like,
2: Oh my God, there's, what are we going to do about this? It's so fucking scary. But there's also really smart people out there, such as Brit. Yeah. We're thinking about this stuff. (laughs) But, but it's also like,
3: you know, it feels like immediately, like I'm thinking of like, what are the things that I can do? And then I'm like, also what about these fucking companies that are like actually like hurting the environment way more than like I could ever hurt by or, or, you know, repair by helping by like recycling my fucking recyclables or like doing shit like that. I mean, that's the thing is like, that's the thing that for me makes me feel anxious is like, I feel like as an individual, it's really hard to make a change, you know, in the system, like, you know, getting rid of oil and gas companies or, or, you know, yeah, but that'd
2: be like a raindrop in the cloud going, I feel like it's going to be really hard for me to make the ground wet. It's like, (laughs) yeah, but you've got all the other fucking raindrops that are going to come down with that should you.
3: be on a poster poster and yeah, cursive that was, writing that or he,
2: thanks
1: to that point then brian and, and to Britt, uh, we we had kind of we'd we sort of glossed over this but Britt, you you just uh you just released a book uh, it's available now in canada it's called generation dread finding purpose in an age of climate crisis and you know we were just speaking about like your um your reproductive anxiety that you were dealing with and and that's by way of of climate anxiety and something that I'm I'm really curious to kind of talk to you about especially considering you've you've put in so much research and you 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 wrote this wonderful book um uh wh- like how does what's the difference between how, where does climate anxiety sit in the realm of mental health uh it, like it, is is climate anxiety considered a a, a mental health disorder You know, like, could we categorize it as that or is or is this something is this something different?
0: Something different. It's not a disorder. It's not to be pathologized. In Mm -hmm. fact, mental health professionals largely say that it's a natural and normal response to a real unfolding existential threat. Okay, so we anxiety is a highly misunderstood emotion as though it's some bad thing we want to beat off. Of course, sometimes it can be a disorder where you're stirring in catastrophic thoughts, it's not productive. Anxiety is trying to point something out that matters so that we put our attention on it and can try and remove the threat, right? Mm. And because of the cascading changes in the climate, people are starting to feel what's happening to the earth, what's happening to other. species, what's happening to ecosystems we depend on. It's pretty obvious when you have something like a horrific heat dome that swept Western Canada and killed over 800 people in BC last summer, let alone all the other provinces and states close by. Um, We don't have to talk about all the disasters. It's just that we're getting all the information at, mm. in a pretty quick pace. It's speeding up. We can feel it. We're not numb to it. And so it's good. It's good that we are feeling this because it shows that we care and that we're awake and that we're not numbed by our unconscious defenses that mm. try to just protect ourselves away from pain until it's too late. We need to feel this to be able to really step into this moment and do everything we can together to mitigate the harm. But mm. interestingly, you know, the American Psychological Association calls it the chronic fear of environmental doom which is a pretty Ooh, snappy yeah. description. Um, and I think it's pretty apt. My colleagues and I looked at climate anxiety in 10,000 children and young people in 10 countries around the world. So we were looking at Philippines, Nigeria, um, India, Brazil, UK, US, France, Finland, Australia, and um, 16 to 25 year olds. And we, even for us, the people who researched this, we were alarmed by what we found. So. The thing about climate anxiety, although it's it's a reasonable, normal, healthy response to what's happening, it can become so severe that it impacts your daily functioning. And forty five percent of these ten thousand youth said that their climate feelings are interrupting their ability to to function on a daily basis. So eat, sleep, concentrate, go to work, go to school, be in relationship. Mm -hmm. Seventy five percent of them said that the future is frightening, and fifty six percent of them said that humanity is doomed. That, of course, does not mean that humanity is doomed. It means that that many young people are walking around the world today feeling that way about their own lives and futures, Mm -hmm. which is incredibly sad to let land into your heart, but it demands a response, right? And and importantly, not only were they reporting feelings like being sad, anxious, angry, feeling powerless or helpless, but these feelings were significantly correlated with the sense of being lied to by leaders and betrayed by governments. So we're talking about a mental health impact of what you can call institutional betrayal. And interestingly, you know, you pointed out that feeling of overwhelm, like what am I supposed to do? Oh my mm. God. Like what, why the hell am I even recycling when we're doing when what really matters is, you know, these collective mm. issues. And it, it can be super empowering to understand what the fossil fuel industry has done in order to fund and the misinformation and so doubt among the the public about the dangers of the greenhouse effect for decades. So like Exxon, for example, in the late 70s and early 80s had its own climate modeling group internal to the company. And there are internal industry memos that you can find with a quick Google search that show you how back then they were saying, indeed, if we continue with the corporate planning scenario, It is very likely that a significant portion of the global population will be facing catastrophic loss like they knew this. And they Mm. instead of doing what was right, which was going with their own internal verified science, they funded disinformation and they cherry picked data and planted fake experts and funded conspiracy theories and everything that we also saw with big tobacco in order to protect their profits and this is wonderfully explored by people like naomi oreskes a science historian at harvard and her book merchants of doubt and a bunch of investigative journalists like amy westervelt and her podcast drilled i highly recommend go listening to that because it's important to connect with the anger over the injustice of this to be able to not just like then sit in the corner and feel helpless but actually be like hey what the hell, you know? And like Mm -hmm. use that as a motivating emotion amongst the difficult emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, And importantly, like a lot of people don't know this, but BP, British Petroleum, in a ad campaign that cost over $100 million, they actually came up, they incepted the term carbon footprint. They started creating calculators to put out to the public of like, why don't you look at your carbon footprint and how much you're hurting the environment in your day to day life? Great. Mm -hmm. Now that you're aware of it, do your best to mitigate it. And Mm -hmm. we unwittingly started using that terminology in our own environmental campaigns, you know? (laughs) yeah, like,
2: like, like, that's damn like, <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah oh man
1: I, <laughs> in in like in terms of um in terms of like the the research that you've done, especially in in speaking with all these youth um you know we we just use we just use reproductive anxiety as like as one example of how this could be having like um you know a pretty clear effect on someone's life in terms of the way that they are reacting to this, um, you know, like you said, this, this, this useful tool, this useful survival mechanism tool. Um, but, but also it's, it's, you know, it's obviously very challenging for a lot of people. So like, what are some other like concrete examples of how, how climate anxiety is like having a direct effect on people's day to day life?
0: Oh, sure. So there's actually the spectrum of how it manifests in people's lives at this climate aware therapist. Caroline Hickman came up with based on her clinical observations, helping hundreds of people around the world with climate anxiety. So when the feelings are, you know, mild, the person might just get upset on a whim, like they read an article that's kind of scary and they can feel a bit panicky. But then they are reassured by someone saying, "Don't worry, there's smart people working on the problem." I think we just heard it in the
1: yeah, conversation. We, yeah, yeah, just said, <laughs> yeah. Brad just,
3: yeah. just said that. No, Taylor yeah. said that to me. It was, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, right. Right. Yeah, minimizing my anxiety.
0: <laughs> right, and that can work. for some people when their defenses are still very much intact (laughs) when yeah they can just dampen it down and be like okay i'm back to back to other things um when the feelings become a bit more significant what we're dealing with is a breakdown of these unconscious defenses that protect us from disturbing thoughts that come up from the unconscious and then you know hit the surface and we we don't like them so we tamper them down we have these really nifty tricks including disavowal which is a soft denial that we all kind of unwittingly participate in it's like having one eye open to the truth and one eye closed at the same time so it's like one eye open yes this is absolutely terrible and we ought to do everything to marshal society towards a better climate future by taking action now and then simultaneously we close the other eye and jump on the next plane and continue to live out our lives according to you know everything we've We've expected and taken for granted, not recognizing that we need to do sure. massive uncomfortable change making. Um, and then so, like as we go up the scale towards more significant eco distress, you might find, people being willing to break off friendships with, with folks who don't care about the climate emergency, for example, because it becomes mm. intolerable for them to not be seen not have their like hugest concern in the world be taken seriously. Maybe they stop flying. Maybe they stop eating meat. You know, these kinds of things that just like, I don't feel comfortable anymore. The gap between my values and my actions is so wide and it's making me just like not be able to live with myself. And so I'm going to stop these things. I've interviewed, um, young people who basically feel rage towards their parents when their parents aren't showing that their activism is is meaningful or that the climate, they tell them that they're just being dramatic, the climate emergency isn't an emergency, that sort of a thing. Um, and then, of course, the, the issues where many people are finding these problems and the relationships, one wants a child, the other doesn't know because of climate change. This can be a huge fracturing um that sort of thing yeah. so it can come up every lots of parent child dynamics i i i have a newsletter um, where people write me about these kind of difficult climate conversations they're having and i notice a huge trend with parent child um misunderstandings essentially and like yeah. the older generation's not getting it what the millennials and anyone younger are really thinking and feeling often yeah i mean, I mean what, you
1: see that you you even see that not even in like direct relationships but you see that with like greta you know out there Putting her oh, message yeah. forward, and just you know, all these older generations looking down at her, you know, and you see sort that of belitt- and, belittling. And her I not think taking he's her serious. You
2: see that across like many issues between yeah. younger and older generations, yeah. where there's just like a yeah. gap in yeah. in in the social psychology of a younger generation compared to an older yeah. one, and 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 sort of the older generation just going like, I don't get it. Yeah, you know mm-hmm. like that that happens yeah. a lot. It's
3: like tr- them even just trying to use computers. Yeah, just, ma- just, it just maps it. right over yeah. to uh, psychological yeah. issues. Yeah. Send me a <laughs> screenshot. Oh, I'm
2: not techie. Um, <laughs> I, I'm wondering uh, which is something that someone said to me like well, uh, four days ago. Um, I uh, I I'm wondering when you said you you were talking about the um, the, uh, the the poll or the study that you did that was showing people's like you know things that people uh-huh. how people were feeling and. Um, when you mentioned the piece about um, a certain percentage of people feel like um, uh, I can't remember how you put it um, that there was, was it that, the
0: future is frightening, yeah, humanity was, is doomed.
2: Yeah, humanity <laughs> is doomed. Yeah, I, I remember it being quite scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I'm wondering, like, how much in your in your um, research do do you do you what do you what do you how's the best way to phrase this question? What role do you think the internet and the way that information is uh, is dispersed amongst a population and like you know news cycles and just the way that information is presented to us through news through through the internet um, plays in terms of like ramping up like not not saying that it's an undeserved anxiety, but like you said, mm-hmm. people feel that that the that the world is that the world is doomed and that humanity is doomed. That doesn't necessarily make it so, but you feel that way. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I get the sense that, and I don't, I'm not want to seem like I'm wearing my tinfoil hat, but there are people out there that make a lot of money by people feeling really anxious about a lot of things and continuing that feeling because people want to continue absorbing that content. So I'm just wondering, what do you think like the, the way that information spreads around plays a role in how people feel about the climate crisis?
0: I think the way that we are taking in this world of cataclysmic stories through our devices has a huge impact on how people are feeling, right? Like the age of doom scrolling is upon us. And we get these torrents of feeds of bad news through TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and what have you. And it can be really hard to also find the balancing, nourishing news alongside it often. And I, I, just to take the tin hat off for a moment, I don't think that people are necessarily trying to pump that out as a science journalist in order to make money for the organization. Like, as someone who works within science communication, that is never, ever, ever the impetus. <laughs> but it really that's is- That's what they
1: would say. That is exactly <laughs> also, what they would say.
0: Also, I was, I, was uh, I, I had a
2: few, I had a few specific uh, cable news organizations <laughs> in oh, mind. Sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, of course. Um, you're right, but it's it's there is this urgency and there is this feeling of like we're not acting, and then there's this default mode of thinking public understanding of science is going to increase action. Like oh only we just fact them over the head more and more, they're gonna like finally internalize it and then do the action. And here we go, and it never works. And science mm. communication, decades of it have shown, we can't just fill up the public like they're an empty vessel with more and more facts, and then there's gonna be a magical moment in which they really take it seriously and mm. do the right thing. No, we. All come to this information and interpret it through our own values and beliefs. And we can basically twist any bit of content to reinforce the bias we come to it with, which is really dangerous. And that's why conservatives and liberals can go to the exact same data and leave right, believing yeah. very different things about it, right? Yeah. Um, and so we need to facts. have
3: alternative facts. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's like it's
0: such a nightmare because of all this. But at the same time, then the focus on the negative can really feed uh, a state of pre-traumatic stress. So this is instead of the classic post-traumatic stress we hear about, it's the like before the mm. version before the event version of PTSD, where we kind of make our um, awareness just so hyper vigilant to bad things that could happen and that we stir in negative thoughts that relate to the uncertainty um, that the climate crisis presents us with about when, you know, these tipping points might be crossed, for example and it can really the the brain over responds to negative information and you know good news is nice but it kind of like is like water off a duck's back it just kind of we don't (laughs) ruminate on it we ruminate Mm. on the bad stuff and there's Mm. good reasons why evolutionarily but um all of this is really narrowing a, a, a lot of people's sense of what's happening for our future it can narratively foreclose it it can feed depression it can feed anxiety and it's super dangerous we need to be Wide enough to also look at the other things that are simultaneously true. And the big problem is that a lot of this feeds cognitive dissonance like holding two conflicting ideas in the mind at the same time mm. when we both have our eyes on the alarming information that we ought to act on mm. and also can see the joyous nourishing hilarious good beautiful stuff about the world and being alive and the and the people who are making great gains on addressing the climate crisis simultaneously and that's a very uncomfortable place to be and so mm. we often split off the good from the bad and then we dig our heels in hard on one side of the divide typically you know in these days, a lot of people are digging their heels and heart on the bad side, but others will also mm. be kind of techno-optimistic and like only think of the good and cheerlead just for, you know, some kind of carbon capture technology that doesn't exist yet that's going to fix it all. Um, and uh, And that split is really unhealthy. We need to be able to be kind of deep enough people to hold both and know that they're both true, even though that can be uncomfortable to reconcile so that we're not turning away from the threat, but we're also not feeling like the future is a hellhole, yeah. and we can, you know, approach it with 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 happiness, with joy, with connection. So,
1: are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper
2: Have you ever spent any time wondering about the the sort of like phenomenon that I think we've all experienced where you, where you watch a climate documentary that really hits you on the head and then how we so easily, I've done this so many times, so easily just slip, slip right back into like you never saw it. Yeah. I'm I'm fascinated by that because I will be floored by a documentary that really like just slams you over the head with, with how some like really small, like relatively insignificant things in your life could change very slightly and make like a a, a dent, like at least your own personal dent, which then you're hoping that, you know, everybody else makes that same dent, which accumulates into like, uh, you know, an impact. But then... You know, you just kind of. Then
1: you just slip right back to throwing your McDonald's yeah, right you, out yeah, the car window. Yeah, then you, yeah, then you then you, <laughs> then you open up oh, your oh, phone. Dude, I hear you. Then you open up your phone and you,
2: you you know you scroll through Instagram for a minute and then it's like it's like it's like it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like fucking Tommy Lee Jones just held yeah. up that thing from Men in Black yeah, and just wiped yeah. your brain clean yeah. and you and and yeah you just go on about your life. Right? Yeah, I I sorry. Go ahead, Britt.
0: No, I was gonna say that's such a beautiful description of the disavowal thing
2: that I mentioned.
1: Where you have
0: one mm-hmm. eye open, you're like, I'm taking it in right now, but then <laughs> it's closed yeah. and now yeah. I'm I'm back to doing how I was before.
1: I, I, I'm curious about like um uh and just to just to touch on the book for a minute, um Generation Dread, <clears throat> I'm curious about like tools that you have you have um either heard of or thought up um that people can use i mean maybe someone's listening right now and they and they are one of those people that is like that feels pretty pretty uh pretty taken by the the climate anxiety that's that's affecting them on a day-to-day basis and and i know i, I, I not to like not to uh make this about me but I am the narcissist of the group, and I, I know that you uh, you wrote an entire chapter about my TED talk in your book, which I'm so uh, I feel so cool uh, to, to, <laughs> to be able to say that. But 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 what the, I really loved what you what you did in that chapter. You, you so so f- for folks who might not have heard, my TED talk was about was about embracing your your mortality. Was about embracing the fact that we're all going to die. And as someone who lives with cystic fibrosis, that's something that I've like meditated on for you know, 34 years and, and it's changed who I am. It's, it's, it's effectively made me live my life um, with a little bit more um, gratitude and, and maybe a little bit more like excitement because I know that I have this like ticking clock. And uh, regardless of whether or not I know the time that I'm going to die, I've, I've sort of set that fake time. And it's, it's been a really great tool in, in changing the way that I live day to day. And you, you took that, but in the book in generation dread, you took that example and you, you sort of, you sort of twisted it a little bit to like encourage people to maybe utilize that same notion of thinking of like setting your, your clock, setting your, your expiry date to, to sort of shift the way that you look at the, the climate crisis. And, and so how, you know, in knowing that, how do you want to live day to day, knowing that there's this existential threat right in front of our face and, and knowing that this could be your, your expiration, what are you going to do to live, to be a better person, to be the, that person who is, who's able to take control of your life and enjoy your life, but also like be good for the planet. Um, and I, I, I think I, I love that. I love that you took that from from the talk, and I love that you use that as an example, as like a tool that you can use to be, to you know, to to manage anything that might be coming up um, in terms of climate climate anxiety. But are there any other are there any other you know modes of thinking or tools that you've kind of come across that you or that you think about yourself in order to to deal and manage with the anxieties that come with the fact that. You know, the planet is doomed, quote unquote.
0: I love your TED talk so much, and I just want to ruminate on that before we get past it, just sure. for a second. Um, so, one thing about the climate crisis, and possibly why we don't deal with it head on, and and are really good at you know watching the documentary and then immediately not thinking about it anymore, is that the climate crisis makes us think of death. Mm. And we will do anything to kind of avoid the reminder that we're going to die. You know, this is Ernest Becker's work and the denial of death and all this interesting cognitive psychology experiments that when, you know, people are given these, these flashes or these reminders or they're, they're what's called mortality salience increases, that awareness of death, um, they can really lash out. They can really do anything to, to turn away from it, including, you know, um, this is kind of an explanation for why we create more evil as we believe that we are kind of confronting evil. Like a lot of war breaks down to uh, fighting over cultural symbolism, like a flag or some kind of deity. Um, The only things that can really go beyond our short fleeting time on earth and outlive us. And so coming from this idea that like, we don't like dealing with the fact that we're going to die, whether it's from something, you know, violent like a climate disaster or just generally uh because we're all going to this then becomes a powerful way to to address some of the psychological problems that the climate crisis presents us with and I think that you know there's that there's that um what it was it Tuesdays with Maury kind of thinking like sitting down on the deathbed with someone and and being able to hear them talk about what was most important in their life and what they valued what what was really the most meaningful, it, it brushes the bullshit aside. You can ask questions like, am I glad that I spent all that time feeling hard done by or staying up late at the office? Or do I really wish that I had made that art or played with my kid more or what have you or created that activism group? And um, you know, there's just so much existential philosophy that wraps up with this. And I think the climate crisis, although it's not a death sentence, right? And I'm not trying to say that we, we're all gonna die because of the climate crisis at all. But we have to take seriously what this is already doing. It's not some far out future prospect already it's killing people mm. and species, and we know it's getting worse and more uncomfortable and that like you know that horrible meme that when it's sweltering hot, this is the coolest summer for the rest of our lives, kind of feeling mm. so let's let's face it and allow it to transform us positively. And your TED Talk did that so beautifully. And what, um, what we can all do is harness this death awareness for the most powerful forms of existential meaning, making meaning from the suffering of climate anxiety and grief. And importantly, um, you know, we talk about climate anxiety a lot, but climate grief, like really dealing with the, the fact that we need to kind of let go of the world as we've known it. The world that perhaps many of us who are privileged have been able to take for granted as a secure stable place and welcome in climate disruptions and an unstable climate into the world's baseline and then understand that it what it means to be human has changed as a result of this unprecedented threat that touches everything and so we're in this process a lot of us aren't awake to it but many are waking up now and um what that means is that we're going from old stories to new stories and that can feel like a deadly zone it can really leave people in a despondent place um, when they're panicking or and fearful and it can kind of carve your stomach out when you're grieving and it feels like it's never ending but actually grief is so much more than just recognizing difficult feelings of loss it's about how those feelings can teach you things and change you as you relearn the world when you start kind of grappling with how the world has changed basically we have choices about how we can be in the face of choiceless events right and that's Mm. also what your ted talk speaks to and i think the climate crisis presents us with a fantastic opportunity for doing that and then digging in and really living our more vibrant more meaningful lives Mm. and living in the service of something beyond just ourselves so all of that has been super powerful for me and is why i've changed my work and career and, and lots of things to now focus on this but um other kinds of tricks i mean You really need to find other people who get it and who can talk to you, who can kind of stand in the fire with you if you're feeling this stuff, and not tell you that you're being dramatic. Um, And then, and that can be hugely relieving for people. So now there's there's climate aware therapy. These are mental health Mm. professionals that specifically focus on legitimizing the feelings and helping you cope with them, understanding that the climate crisis is a type of cultural and collective trauma. We can't just get. It's not like sexual assault where it's like a trauma that happens once and then you might get stuck reliving it. It's something that will continue to affect humanity over, you know, the course of our lives. And so we can't get over it or like beat it back, so to speak, but we can learn how to cope with it well and fold it into our lives and Mm. um, respond to it in a thoughtful kind of caring way. So that's a whole project there. There's also now this cottage industry of, of groups and coaches for helping people move through these emotions, whether it's grief, anxiety, anger about the climate crisis, like the Good Grief Network, they run a 10 step program modeled on Alcoholics Anonymous to be able to usher people through these these reckonings and like confronting death and all these things um, and then reinvesting that emotional energy into actions that matter right now. And Mm -hmm. so I find it like it's, it's a huge unleash of energy, which is actually really awesome. And it kind of gets people out of that miasma of you know a lot of western kind of industrialized high-income countries that have been you know really laced with consumerism and distractions and maybe maladaptive coping like alcohol and drugs and Mm. and different things but can really kind of refocus Mm. on things that bring people more alive at this time um so but people need support because it's kind of abstract like how do you grieve for the idea that you might not have grandkids or like how do you grieve for a coastline you called home that's being lost to sea level rise or mm. grieve for a glacier, you know? Mm. Um, is, yeah. Uh, is, is there
2: any, um, is there any, is there anything to learn in terms of like this from a psychological mental health perspective, um, on, on climate anxiety and like, like what you just said, like, how do you learn to grieve like, um, for the future and, and, um, and to cope and adapt with, with this with this reality and not let it like have it be present have it be present it's happening but also Uh but also cope with it and deal with it and and try to make progress on it is there anything to be learned from like the post-world war ii nuclear threat sort of like existential like the red scare like thinking there's Uh like at any moment there could be this nuclear threat. And we're all sort of like living under this shadow of possible imminent doom for humanity and mutually assured destruction and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of similarities and differences with that, which is pretty interesting. Because if you know, a foreign leader drops an atomic bomb on you, there's really nothing you can do. And people in that, like at heightened moments of scare around that have felt what psychoanalysts call just psychic numbing. It's like when animals play dead in the face of a threat, you Mm. can't do anything to overcome it. Right. You're pretty helpless and vulnerable, exposed. So you just kind of play dead in the face of the threat. And um, that was a reaction that was largely seen around, for example, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is Mm -hmm. something I write about in my book. Um, And, you know, it's weird because we almost see the same reaction with the climate crisis, where a lot of people feel like helpless and, and powerless to do anything which is strange because it's not it's not the same issue. This is not like a leader pressing detonate or don't. This is the fabric of the world and every decision we make either can help it get on track or slide it further off the rails. And so we have a lot of agency and we have to increase this feeling that our actions, even though no single action can solve it, still matter, even though they're small and increase our self-efficacy, the belief that we can achieve our goals through really working together with others to increase that story and know that it's true because it is true and so we're really nowhere near as powerless as we feel it just is still having the same often psychic numbing effect which is pretty dangerous so there's similarities and differences there to look at for sure but often what what this all kind of comes down to is meaning focused coping so you know when you when you bring out the victor frankel you know things are bad i'm not sure if you're familiar with him but
2: and search for meaning
0: <laughs> and search for meaning exactly like the the um The survival through concentration camps that he endured was, by his own account, fomented by this focus on knowing that if he survives, he's going to be able to get out there in the world and lecture about his theory of logotherapy, the idea that man's search for meaning, even in the most abject circumstances, can continue our existence it's that we are meaning making animals and so focusing on that potential even though the outlooks were grim like truly fed him and his imagination and Mm -hmm. to keep going to make meaning from his suffering that it wouldn't all be for naught and that's similar to what people can do in any difficult circumstance including the climate crisis it's like harnessing this and making meaning of it by doing the kind of work that Jeremy outlined so beautifully at the TED Talk for unleashing that. Kind of, it's like a springboard to taking advantage of every moment that you have. And so that can really lead to the kinds of healing outcomes, like connecting with others. We need to do this in community, we can't do Mm. it alone. People stir in isolation and alienation with climate distress and it makes it a lot harder. It's not necessary because a lot of people are feeling this stuff. And so just knowing that there's a community that can receive them is hugely empowering. Um, also doing that kind of emotional activism that's internal. Like we always talk about the urgency of external actions, which are super needed, of course, but importantly, we need to slow down enough to actually feel our feelings and allow them to be there and learn to value them and validate them and then use them as important navigational tools for this time, Um, because it's again, not a mental disorder. And then lastly, also, of course, taking action because when you take action externally like out there in the world it addresses the threat that bothers you
2: mm. speaking a, of um i was just, i just yeah. wanted to just to just point like man's search for meaning is like one of the most like introspective generating mm. books that i've ever read and and there's a there's a there's a there's a piece in that book where he is describing being on the train or the bus or something in Germany after post-World War II, after uh, like two or three years after, and there was an article um, about uh, concentration camps that uh, somebody sitting beside him on public transit was reading. And there was a, and the image was of all of these um, Jewish um, prisoners who were, who were in a, you know, wherever they were sleeping. And it was like, you know, a a mud ground and they were stacked on top of each other. And it was just like this horrific conditions. Um, but the, there was like the door was slightly ajar and there was like sun coming through the door and the person beside he, he, he kind of, they, they made contact with each other and he says something to the effect of the man, the man reading the article says something to the effect of like, I can't imagine how horrible this would be referencing the photo and, and, Victor Frankl says this was actually the most beautiful moment of every day because this was a a moment of silence where we weren't like all of the horrible things weren't happening to us. We were in this space. The sun was coming through. The sun was giving us warmth. And like, he just like encapsulated the, the, like the, this meaning in this horrific Mm. scene and scenario. And I I don't know Uh. that, that, that piece of the book like burned into my Ooh. soul when I read it and just being like having the mindset of being able to create meaning, which will sustain your life. And he said like, it was those moments that kept me, it was that moment that kept me alive. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't, if I wasn't able to create that meaning then I would have died. Mm-hmm.
3: Wow. Uh, Britt, I'm, I'm curious about um, speaking of that last point that you made about taking action. I feel like with the, um, Most of the challenges that humanity faces, uh, they seem to obviously disproportionately affect marginalized populations. And Mm -hmm. I think of even like like low income people who, you know, feel distressed about making um, changes to help, you know, with climate action. But then go to the grocery store, for example, and like, you know, the cheapest things that they can buy are, you know, mass produced, and not organic, you know, like they rather than shopping like at local stores, they shop at big box stores, you know, predominantly or, or mainly just because the prices are, are better. Um, are there other ways that, like, are maybe less obvious that marginalized populations would be disproportionately affected by um, climate anxiety?
0: yeah so we see in that study that i mentioned that the most the highest disrupted functioning was reported from philippines india nigeria for example from their climate anxiety um we have data from the us that shows that black and latino communities feel more alarmed about the climate crisis than their white counterparts and are also more willing to take action as a result likely because of their increased vulnerability to its effects so this is very real and you know, understanding that this collective problem requires collective solutions is really the best way to go at thinking about action. Because the individual, like, of course, people who can only afford so much should never feel ashamed of only being able to buy those things. And that's totally fine, but that's also not the lever through which we can really address the climate crisis meaningfully. Mm-hmm. It's about voting, right? It's mm. about pressuring your representatives. It's about talking about it, even just voicing it. A lot of people still aren't regularly talking about it. Um, And then it's like, if you have the leeway, if you can bend your occupation towards addressing the climate crisis, then that's amazing because we're in the moment where we need a billion climate activists and activism can look like anything. It doesn't need to be hitting the streets with a placard. It can be, you know, changing your investment portfolio if you do that sort of thing for, for part of your work or it can be using your podcast to talk about this more. Um, and so really any kind of role of empowerment that we can wake up to. And there's this amazing diagram that I love uh, of, about how you can take the action that is really helpful at this time because again, a lot of people think it means that you need to do something really specific. It doesn't we're fickle creatures, we need to author our change ourselves if, if it's going to stick. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you think about like what you're really good at, um, what your skills are, like what your talents are, and then you overlay that in a Venn diagram with um, like what gives you energy, what gets you out of bed in the morning, what, what you're passionate about, and then also what the work is that needs doing. Um, and kind of in between these three areas there can be a sweet spot of agency that reveals itself you know whether you are uh, like an artist who works in the fashion industry and understands that the fashion industry is one of the most polluting industries on the planet you can start addressing it from that kind of sustainable textile work Mm -hmm. or you know for me I love I love learning about the human condition. I'm fascinated by it. I'm a communicator. Okay. The work that needs doing is coming up with interventions to protect mental health as things heat up. There's a place where I can start learning about psychology and mental health and directing my research, for Mm -hmm. example. I mean, it's, it's different for everyone, but there's just a lot that we can do without, without just, and also those of us who are privileged, I think we have the extra responsibility to like glean a far reaching sense of implication in this crisis, understand that it's our lifestyles that are doing this. Like what we're talking about is climate colonialism, right? Like the the places that are feeling the effects hardest and worst are the poorest, most marginalized places within our countries. And also when we're looking at the global scale, they're concentrated in the global South yeah. mm. and, um, they have very low emissions compared to places like Canada. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, we, we need to also see that clearly and understand that we can use this awareness and anxiety for, for climate justice, for, um, you know, making the changes that other people can't afford to make.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Britt, what was the, uh, what was the thing that ultimately, um, made you decide to go ahead and have a child after, after all of that, um, you know, reproduction anxiety that you were, you were experiencing, what, what made the, what made the shift?
0: Several things. Um, well, I certainly thought about it until the cows came home and felt about it until it was just so my partner was so sick of me talking about it, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, but really, you know, there were, there was this sense that if if I let that part of myself that calculates the future um, towards thinking that a child isn't the right thing to do at this at this moment, that was a very fearful mindset that was always rooted in this kind of negative anticipatory yeah. perspective. And I really didn't want to let that take over my life. Um, i I had a child as a commitment to joy uh, despite the severity of the crisis, and come what may. I had to own the fact that that's pretty selfish. Um, I think childbearing has probably always been selfish, but it's often not talked about that way. In fact, child-free people have always been attacked for being selfish to enjoy life without kids. But I think that has shifted um, in this time. And it allowed me to really move away from this big, like heavy question of, is it okay to have a child to, okay, what's required when we have children today? How can we support our kids so that they're resilient to deal with what's happening and what's coming and so that we can raise our kid in community that is focused, attuned to the crisis and coming up with the kinds of solutions that are that are helpful for any kid today. So it was really a massive gear change. But it was also, you know, the stuff you were talking about in your TED talk. It's like, what do I want to do with this one life I have? Like, you know, what feels meaningful and I was not satisfied even on the many hundreds of days. I was like, okay, no kid, no, thank you. And then it would always come back. Mm.
2: So, and there's so much like, attention. It, something that's been like really overwhelming for me over the past uh, five weeks, uh, six weeks today. Um, oh, is, congratulations. Thank so you're you. that new? Wow. Very new. new. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is like, I mean, I'm an optimist by nature anyway but like the level of optimism that I feel looking at that little person and going, mm. there is just an ocean of opportunity and potential within you and feeling like just feeling that sense of sense of optimism. Like you can, like, like you could do any, like you could be anything. You could do anything. There's just mm-hmm. like, there's no limit to your potential in the form that you're in. And I'm just so excited. like, I'm just so excited to see what form that takes into the future, you know, whether, whatever that is. And like, when you're talking about, when we're talking about this topic, you know, it's like, there is a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a sliver of a percentage point out there that is, that is that she might add a lot to the climate crisis, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, and there, Mm -hmm. like there is that sliver of optimism in, in that, that sort of like ocean that I feel about, about her and her, her life. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's been really incredible. Um, the
1: book, yeah. uh, the book is out now again. Uh, the book is titled generation dread finding purpose in an age of climate crisis. Britt, um, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and, and chat with us about these very important topics. Uh, how can people find you? How can people keep up with your work? How can people get a hold of the book? plug away.
0: Thank you. Thank you all. So you can follow me at uh, Jen underscore dread on Instagram. I have a Substack newsletter, jendread.substack.com about staying sane in the climate crisis. It's free. Um, The book is available anywhere books are sold. Um, Generation Dread uh, under the Penguin Random House uh, world. And yeah, Twitter, Britt Ray. So thank you so much for having me on. It was really fun to talk with all of you, especially because I'm a big fan of the show.
1: Yay, Mm -hmm. thank you. This has been really, really fun. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is SickBoy.